education will see itself as important as any other sector, as important as healthcare, advanced manufacturing, the hard sciences, all of it. And we'll see a chance to really this disruption as opportunity and a way to embrace true innovation and creativity. And to our earlier point, curiosity around what's possible. And that they'll, they'll put pen to paper and get busy and do some really intentional design work around how they connect kids to the workforce and talent development in robust ways, how they inspire passions and interests of students in robust ways. There's just so much amazing, good things that can happen that I just have this sense that the time is now and there's this moral imperative for me to have these systems be better than we were before. This week's guest is Kelly Loff, CEO of MindSpark, a woman on a mission to re-engineer education and prepare children for the world of 2030 and mobilise a workforce capable of tackling the complex problems we're sure to face when the calendar turns 2030. In this extended episode, we cover Kelly's upbringing, developing a hard work ethic at an early age, the guiding influence of her mother and father in developing her foundational life values during what she describes as a magical childhood. Kelly describes how her mother and father nurtured and cultivated her curiosity and exposed her to the realities of social inequity at an early age. We explore her education, her focus on science and math, her experience of the lack of gender diversity that drove her desire and intentionality to help young girls and underrepresented students through education and access. Kelly discusses her willingness to lean into discomfort and confront failure, following the path of education and the serendipity of a tragic event that made her resolute in making the most of her opportunities in life. Her response was to build a STEM, problem-based learning system that integrated local business partnerships to create a pathway to employment for children. Kelly describes the greater impact of the system, how it's expanded children's perspective on possibility and the life transformation that's resulted. Now scaling the system nationally, Kelly describes working from the inside out and investing in teachers to drive the transformation that's needed. She discusses the imperative of now and how she's forming partnerships with local and national organisations to help them leverage the MindSpark strategy. Finally, we discuss the importance of diversity, playfulness and innovation. And we finish with Kelly's principles, the hard choices she's made and her advice on confronting the impossible, as well as the other quickfire questions. I think you'll be uplifted, inspired and energised by the gentle determination and disruptive spirit of Kelly Loth. Before we get started, we should say that Kelly was sitting in her home in Colorado with her English bulldog by her side. So at some point during the interview, you can hear the dog um, soundly asleep, let's say. I've done my best to clean it up uh, in the edit, but there are moments when you can hear her pet bulldog. Now, on with the show. Kelly, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hi, good morning. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, and where are you located at the moment as we speak? I am sitting in my living room with my English bulldog beside me. She's my office mate and I'm in Broomfield, Colorado. Wonderful. Okay, well, um, I'm, as usual, I'm sitting in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, so <laughs> we'll get going. So, before we get into talking about your the amazing work you're doing and the way I think you describe it as re-engineering education, we'd like to talk a bit more about your education and your upbringing and the impact of your parents and any other mentors on your journey. Yeah. So perhaps you could just start with where you're born. Now, I, I believe it was a place called Durango. It was, correct. Yeah, I was born in Durango, yeah. Colorado, which is a kind of a smaller town in Colorado in the south 
southwest part of the state near the Four Corners area. So I was born there and then <clears throat> actually grew up about 16 miles outside of the town itself in a very rural community. It actually has a name. It's Breen, Colorado. If you uh, drive through there and blink, then you'll miss the sign. <laughs> so when you live somewhere that rural, you always kind of, you know, mark out your where you live in your geographic location by, you know, kind of fence posts and yard signs and different things like that. When you said four corners, what, what's that? I've never heard that term. Is it something yeah, so in the southwest part of the state, the Utah and Arizona, New Mexico and Colorado meet in a four corner. Their uh, states meet together and it's kind of a, not only a sacred place, but also a place where a lot of tourists come to see. So <clears throat> it's a really, really uh, pretty part of the, of the country. And so grew up in that area. Okay. So what about uh, your parental support? And the guidance they gave, what impact that had on the, the, the direction you've taken in life? Yeah, I, so I come from a family of, of four girls, and so I'm the oldest of four. And I grew up with my mom and my dad, and it was interesting. My parents were incredibly influential in my life. We're a very, very close family, and so there was always, I think, this sense of, you know, living life to the fullest with my parents. They were both incredibly and deeply respected in our community and did a lot of things within our small town and out in our rural part of our of our state. But also they were just people who gathered people together. We used to have, you know, they'd have these huge parties on the weekends and have people over and it just we were really they were very social and but there was also this balance of really, really hard work. So I grew up on a ranch. And so there was, you know, always chores. There was mm. things to do. And so my dad, having four girls and no boys, we really were taught early on the value of hard work and uh -huh. the expectation of what it meant to work hard and play hard. And I'm always, I've always been really grateful for that. So I think in my mind, there's, probably nothing that I can't do because the expectation was you just did it. And often there wasn't even room to complain or be grumpy. I mean, I remember a memory. One of my memories I have is I, uh, we had horses and I, we were trying to train a new horse and I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. I was like eight or nine years old and I was scared and the horse didn't like me and it was not <laughs> a good situation. And my dad was out there and, I got bucked off several times, fell off several times, and he finally just came over and said, we're not going to give up, and you have to. She's as scared as you are, and your success and her success are tied together, so you've got to get this figured out and dust yourself off because we're not going anywhere and stop crying and get your get your act together. And, and then, of course, you know, it was much better and it went fine, but it was just always that kind of attitude, just dig in, figure it out. And my mom was sort of our core and our center. She was always the balance of, you know, making sure that we were all okay, but also very strong herself and such an incredible role model, I think, for, for girls in terms of, again, I just felt like there was nothing we couldn't do. And I grew up in the middle of nowhere. When, my, when I was young, my parents, we weren't very wealthy at all. I would say we were probably 
lower to middle class and kind of lived, definitely lived paycheck to paycheck. Things changed later in life for my parents. And so what was interesting is then later on when they were actually fairly well off, the values were still the same and you yeah. have no idea. They were very unassuming. So, but very generous. Uh, as, you, as you were talking, I was getting images of Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> it was a little bit <laughs> like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, you just played outside all day long, right? You built forts and, you know, rode horses and, and just worked outside. I mean, it just, there was no, we didn't have TV. Um, we got, I think one channel on the one TV we had and, uh, you just, it was just a creative time. It was, it was, you know, I think back now and I think of my childhood as kind of magical when I think yeah. the childhoods, you know, of today a little today, bit Today, I know. Yeah. It's funny, I interviewed a woman called Dr. Pamela Smith, and she runs a program at Columbia looking at the history of science and art. Yes. And she grew up in very similar circumstances in a very rural community. And she had the same thing. There was a local newspaper and there was a local television station and there were miles from anywhere. And there is something, there's a longing for that. So it's like a lost world right. to think about in this connected world. Where can anyone ever attain that sense of perfect isolation yet connectivity to family and values the way that uh, the way that you describe so it's, it's very interesting i usually ask the question about did you grow up in an environment of scarcity or abundance but the way you describe it is that there was an abundance of support love family connection but at the same time maybe economic scarcity but as a child i've when i've interviewed many people there's no real sense of it at the time it's only right. looking back that you're uh, familiar with it so it sounds like the these these values were instilled by your father and your mother at a very young age how have these translated into how you live your life now and bring up your family i think for me still that value around hard work so even though our we live in a very different setting now my children are raised in a very kind of suburban urban setting you know there's still that value of hard work so they still have chores we're still asking them to find you know, get a job when they're teenagers and have a summer job. So I think that that's been very important to us. I think also my parents were very open. They were the kind of parents that all the other kids wanted to be around and hang out with and confide in. And I remember in high school, you know, when the teenagers are difficult, my parents were sort of the go-to parents for some of my friends. And that was also really important to me was this having this sense of clear communication with my with my own kids. I have three teenagers now, so I'm like right in the thick of this. And just the idea that they can they can tell you anything. And even if you're, you know, excuse me, upset or grumpy or whatever it is with it, that it's going to be okay. And that they have a sense that they're not alone and that they you'll dig in with them and figure it out. And I think that's something that my parents, you know, I never felt like there wasn't anything I couldn't go to them with and talk about if I needed them. And that's become really core to us as we raise our, and not that there's not, you know, really not rules and not boundaries, but just that idea that, you know, they're not alone and things aren't so insurmountable or so bad that, you know, we can't figure it out together. I just want to, you know, I look back and I, I don't know how my parents would feel, but I just don't want there to be regret around relationships and, Mm. that sense of, you know, where you belong in your in your place. And so that's just been important to me because I've always felt 
even in situations in my life that were maybe uncomfortable or awkward, or I felt like I didn't belong. I knew that I always fit at home, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I always had a sense where I could go somewhere that was safe and where I belonged and where it really fed my, my heart and soul. And so I want that for my own kids. It's it's interesting that you, when you describe that enduring memory of your father on that horse, that one moment that you recount it as, a, as a, probably a seminal moment in your life in terms of instilling you something that becomes lifelong uh, impact on your self-belief and in these small moments that if he'd not done that it could have taken you in a completely different direction right. just wonder in today's world where, where people are referred to as wallflowers and whatever snowflakes that the lost moments in parenthood and right. teaching of where it's where it's gone wrong so maybe we can come and talk a bit about that when we're talking about what you're how you're re-engineering education Two questions. Growing up in a small town or a small community, how did it affect your worldview? And also, where did you uh, or how did your parents instill in you your, uh, a sense of curiosity to learn more about the world and to be open to the world? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, Durango in itself is a, is a pretty, I feel like, sheltered place to grow up. And so not a lot of uh, diversity and, and even now probably... Colorado as a whole, maybe not as much, and at that time especially, and and but also just you know we did travel some, but it was mostly road trips in the car, and you know I really didn't even get on an airplane until I was much older, and so for me, my parents they would send us to camps over the summer and different kinds of camps, and I think that was probably the first time that I felt like a little bit more outside of my own community, right? I started to get a sense of like the world is much bigger. But also I think that there was so much learning and life skills in in so much of what we did when I look back. And of course, when you're young, you don't think of it at all like that. But, you know, my dad, we would build things in the garage and in the workshop and we would, you know, he was constantly always on a ranch. There's chores and things to fix and do. So we were always involved in that kind of work. And so I was always really curious about how things worked and how things fit together. And if you took it apart, what would happen? And then there was always this creative side. So we would spend, you know, my dad, especially like hours together with the girls and I building Legos and forts and, you know, just this kind of imaginative play. And my mom, you know, we would bake together and, she would even can her own vegetables. We had a, a beautiful garden for a while and she would make her own jam and, and jellies and canned stuff. And even that process of just experimenting and, you know, baking and figuring things out and having it fail and things fall apart. And so just, and I think for, for, since I was little, right, that's just been part of kind of my upbringing. And so when I went and had more exposure to different experiences, I think that that sense of asking questions I think the idea that there's stories to hear from everyone and to learn about people's experience really was something that I, you know, kind of carried forward from my childhood, to be quite honest with you. And just, just wanting to know more, right? Just that love of like, tell me more about that. How does that work? What's going on there? And then having fun. One of our core values at MindSpark today is this idea of surprise and delight hmm. and being unexpected. And I think that literally came from my childhood of the idea that every day was something different. You know, on a ranch, if you don't have your act together, things die. <laughs> things. Yeah. At the same time, you can wake up that day and have a new brand new 
baby horse or brand new baby cow or, you know, something amazing happens. So I think that that sense of, of those pieces have come together for me at a very early age. We also grew up about, I don't know, I think it's about 10, 12, 15 miles from the lar- one of the larger indigenous uh you know, communities in in the country, the Navajo Nation. And so we would go into down into New Mexico and, and do shopping and, and different outings and different things. And I think for me, there was quickly a sense of, again, a, a bigger world, but also just lots of questions around some of the circumstances there and why we kind of saw what we did. And, you know, immediately a sense of like, Things aren't always fair. <laughs> so, so you got out early, at an early age, you were exposed to social inequity. Yes, very early. Yeah. yeah. Yep. To be honest, I, I'm uh, embarrassed to say my knowledge of uh, indigenous tribes in the Navajo Nation is very limited. When they talk about Navano- Navajo Nation, they have presumably their own land, uh, their own communities segregated to a degree economically. Uh, underrepresented, probably. Uh, am I correct? Correct, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, you said something there. Just when you were talking about the ranch, uh, uh, when I think about farming, but presumably you, it was uh, you were raising horses and cattle right. in, on that yes. ranch. Is that predominantly the, the, the focus of the ranch? Yeah, predominantly. We, my dad didn't actually farm. We were surrounded by working farms, but we were uh, had animals on ours. So. Uh, okay, then. And then that, that was his focus, is rearing the animals. Yeah, he had, my dad worked in the oil and gas industry, actually, the whole time I was growing up and started out, you know, just working on wells and checking wells. And, you know, my sisters and I would get a chance sometimes to go overnight and spend the night on an oil rig, which <laughs> is a very crazy experience with my dad and, and get to see that. But yeah, he started out working kind of the oil fields and then eventually kind of worked his way up and through that industry, but and to, to become very, very successful in that endeavor. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it was interesting. And my mom worked when we were very, very young, and then she actually stayed home with us. And I think that's another huge piece is that she was mm-hmm. always there, I mean, for everything yeah. and very, very deeply involved in our lives and in our schooling and volunteering and she was always around, so, you know, as a teenager, it was always so fun because you knew that you couldn't get into a lot of trouble out of small and your parents are everywhere. But but younger, I mean, she was she was there for everything. So I think that's an d- interesting dynamic, too, that I know kind of modern-day families, it doesn't happen as much anymore. Yeah. Okay, so what was school like for the young uh, Kelly? So I actually went to a very small public elementary school about seven miles down the road from our house. It was... Again, a very rural public school, small. So we had mostly mixed classes of grade levels because we didn't always have enough classes for single grades. But it was, I mean, again, I felt like, you know, again, looking back, I feel like now working in the sector that I got a really good education. In fact, I feel like, you know, there's times I want to go back to my principals and my teachers and say, wow, you you did an amazing job because, again, they were very responsive. And I don't know if that's because we were so small and they could be, but I remember just being able, you know, like being identified early as a, as a kiddo who was gifted and talented, but also struggled with some things. And so kind of having this duality to the way that I learned. And they recognized that very early on where I felt like sometimes those 
I might have been a kiddo that fell through the cracks. And we just always had these really interesting opportunities. Again, and, and full creative, I mean, we had art and music and PE and an abundance of those things. Mm. And brought in special programs and everything was very experiential even then, which I think is interesting because it would have been very, very easy, I think, to not have had that opportunity. So I feel really like I... I always, like I said, I think back now, especially with all the schools we work with currently, and I think, wow, they really, mm -hmm. it was really amazing. And then I went to town to for middle school and high school, which was a very big deal. So very long, arduous bus ride to town, to the schools in town. But I still felt like I, I really got a great education and played sports and was in 4-H uh, for a long time. And, and Was in what? 4-H. <laughs> So it's like a 4-H, it's like a, it's a national uh, club that kids can belong to, especially, and mostly it's for rural communities, but a lot of urban places have them as well. Um, so I, you know, that's where I did like some of the showing of animals and learned how to do some different skills and, and pieces like that. But yeah, I mean, it was, I feel like I got, I feel like I got a really good education. In fact... I felt if you were to ask me if I would repeat high school or college, I honestly think I'd go back to high school. I think just because, again, it was such a small community that there was a lot of support for students, but also it was just, it was fun and challenging and there was an abundance of collaboration and the projects were meaningful and I felt like my skills and talents were being utilized. Like it was very inspiring for me. I felt I came out of high school feeling very inspired um, by my experience. And I felt like college for me was harder just because I was away. I think it was away from my family for the first time, which was hard because we were so close. I came from a really small place to a very large place. So I struggled to kind of find my my crew, right? My My community. But also I think that It was the first time, honestly, being challenged to the point where I felt like I would fail and not be able to get back up because high school and school prior, not necessarily had been easy, but I knew how to play the game really well. I liked to please my teachers. I worked hard, but I knew I knew the game and college for me was a whole new game that I didn't know how to play very well. So I tried to find out about your education, couldn't really find much so did you you were drawn i'm assuming to science and math mm -hmm. it was and where did you go on to study so i went um to cu boulder to the university of Colorado boulder and i actually started out in engineering so started out to become a biochemical engineer and i think what was hard was my first year i walked into a chemistry class and uh there was about 250 students in the auditorium which is not unusual And I looked around and counted five girls. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is going to be interesting. And I think for me, that was one of the first moments that I figured out that things just needed to be different and that I was going to have to work hard to figure out how I fit and, and quickly find some mentors and quickly find a group of people to find some support with getting through The courses because they were they were very difficult so I also got a degree in fine arts so I balanced kind of my love of math and science with my love of art and painting which was a really really fantastic balance for me because I feel like the engineering design process is really not unlike kind of the art 
design process. So it was really lovely. And then when I was a junior, I, w I also received a certificate in education. So I went and got a certificate to be a teacher kind of as a backup plan. And I had, had a really great opportunity through CU to help run a camp for girls for math and science over a summer and just fell in love with doing that, with helping young girls connect to to those disciplines and really find their way through it. And really, I mean, it was very, very kind of pivotal for me. And so it motivated me to get my degree in, in education. And then that's kind of where I started to kind of stumble into that a little bit more. In fact. So to, to what you mentioned CU? Yeah, so the University of Colorado Boulder. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned trying to find mentors. Did you have any influential mentors at university? Yeah, so there was a, a couple of, of different professors that were really strong role models for me. I would, again, meet with them regularly. One was actually an in my art degree. She was, a, we would do creative writing, and she was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really harsh. And I sort of thrived on her critical feedback and it made me want to be so much better at the craft that I would seek her out to have conversations and learn from her and knowing that she would always be brutally honest and just had such deep respect for her. So definitely helped me in her feedback and her candor translated into other disciplines for me so that when I was struggling, you know, in my engineering classes or wherever, I knew that you know, I could ask for that feedback and get the help that I needed because if I could, if she could, if she could do that and take yeah. in hers, I could take it from anybody. Do you think there's a, do you think there's a parallel there to that, the way you described the horse situation with your father of leaning into that fear of, the, of her rebuke or her criticism that you didn't run from it, that you, you, you faced it? Absolutely. I think there is. I think that over the years, you know, I've learned about myself that I do sort of thrive in that environment where there is the opportunity to learn from failure, but also the opportunity for, I enjoy the, the honest and the real. Of course, like everyone, I like to receive accolades and be told I'm doing a good job, but I really thrive when there's a deficit and really seek out opportunities to, you know, work through that kind of, that kind of uncomfortableness and try to I tend to migrate toward people who are going to be a little bit more candid a little bit more like not care so much about my emotional state as much as like let's get let's get going like let's get it together let's move past this let's let's figure this out so I think those are the kind of mentors I've had actually throughout my whole life when I look back to be quite honest that really pushed and challenged me and maybe didn't always tell me what I wanted to hear and I think that definitely comes from my experience with both but especially my dad. He was very much that way. You know, if you laid in the dirt and cried, he just walked away from you and expected you to join him in five minutes, you know. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you start to just deconstruct the, the characteristics that I suppose are the foundations of a, a solid life. That you start to see these patterns emerging, the types of things that you're describing. 
So you've explained about what led you to teaching. Before we get into why you pursued teaching as your sort of full-time pursuit, well, perhaps we start there. I mean, you talked about the impact of your teaching these girls and, and seeing the, uh, the, the impact you were having. The, was there a moment when you, you decided that's the route I'm going to go? I'm not going to go down either. I mean, because if we're doing a combination of <laughs> which we, I suppose we call it now a, STEM, a STEAM education, uh, you could have gone down the arts route, you could have gone down the engineering route but you chose teaching could you just explain what that what led you to that decision yeah I think that for me it was probably I spent a few years in the biochemical industry and even though the the work was challenging and actually quite interesting and and intellectually stimulating for me it became sort of isolating and so you know you're one small cog in a giant project. There wasn't a lot of sort of collaboration and a lot of, um, it just wasn't quite what I think I, I thought it would be, to be honest. And that's kind of my own fault for not, you know, having a better sort of pathway toward that career. But after spending a few years in the industry, I realized that I, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't my passion. And I, but I loved science so much and I loved math so much and I thought back to the experience I had helping you know within the science and and math camp and some of the experiences I had had growing up just kind of working with with young students and working with kids and how much I really enjoyed that and so I thought I'm going to lean into my teaching credential and see where it gets me and uh, so that's what I decided to do and was at the time there was actually a teacher shortage across the kind of the Denver metro area. And so a district Kikana came out and recruited a, a cohort of us. And, you know, I raised my hand to be part of that and had my first experience as a teacher. And honestly, I think if I could go back to every single student, I would apologize. Mm. <laughs> I was probably the worst first year teacher on the planet because I didn't know a lot about teaching little ones to read or to write. But I I can tell you we did a ton of science and a ton of math that year, but it was a challenging situation. It was in a very, uh, a Title I school in a very impacted community. And uh, I joined the fact... For, for people that are listening outside of the US, yeah. can you explain a Title I school? So uh, at least uh, 75% of, or higher, the kids are on a free and reduced lunch. So this, this school happened to be sit around 90%. So every child was fed lunch and breakfast uh, for free by the government. So very, very impacted area and at risk. And I was a first and second grade combination teacher and I started mid-year. So you... Whoa, thrown into the thick of it. Yeah, you can imagine if your principal came around and said, hey, we get a new teacher mid-year. We're going to form a class and students, you probably don't, you give out your best and brightest to the new teacher. <laughs> you probably give away your naughty, your naughtiest ones. And so I had a quite the motley crew and I loved and adored every single one of them. And again, we just kind of came together as this little small team. And, you know, we, like I said, we did, you know, a ton of science. I remember vividly walking into the, uh, to the um, principal's office and asking where all the science materials were. And he started laughing and said, I'm not really sure, but I think there might be a closet down the hall with some stuff in it. You help yourself. And he was right. It was a closet just full of junk. And uh, so we cleaned it out and 
kind of put together some kits and it was just, it was, it was so much fun. And uh, I learned so much about myself and quickly realized that I probably wasn't the best primary teacher. Um, so the next year I moved up to teach older students and really specialize in science and did that for a number of years. And just, again, absolutely loved it and always had the goal to especially inspire girls and, and underrepresented students, more diverse students in, in the field of science and show them that anything is possible and, and work through bringing really cool experiences their way. It's just always been something that I think I've really wanted to do. So, I mean, the way that you described uh, teaching them, and I mean, it's a, there's a confidence to go against the grain that's there that not to just follow the curriculum particularly when you're starting out it's a hard thing to do is to uh, invent your own approach as you said describing as using teaching them through the lens of science and, and math i think the, the other thing that comes across is that the, I, i'm wondering is what what is it that draws you to i mean you mentioned girls but also the underrepresented where does that desire to support those let's say less fortunate come from that social is it tied to being aware of social injustice and yeah i think and it aware comes, of the underrepresented yes i think it comes from where i grew up i mean if you would have asked me when i was younger if i grew up you know poor i would have said no if you asked me if i grew up in a community that was pretty you know, highly impacted itself, I would have said no. But when you look, when I look back, it, it is absolutely true that it was. And I think, again, you know, being exposed and growing up in a community that was, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess, poorly resourced and did impact me. And I think for me, it's always become about access because I have always felt like if some, you know, poor white girl from rural Colorado can, can, you know, become an engineer or can, you know, do whatever she wants to do, then everyone should be able to do that or have that opportunity. And so for me, I think it was, it's just become about opportunity and access, to be quite honest. And, you know, even if that's not something that you want to pursue, I think everyone has the right to you know, have access to a family sustaining wage and to have choice, choice about where you live, mm -hmm. where you raise your family, how you live. And I think that that's always just sort of been really, really important to me because, again, I think in the community that I grew up in, I've seen things where people didn't have that choice mm -hmm. or that access. And, and so I think, you know, through my work, that's probably always been there under the surface for me be honest the other it's, it's when you described that uh, that first class as a motley crew you could you could see again that that path going in two different directions if you'd gone down a conventional traditional way of teaching trying to force feed them uh reading and writing in a traditional way you probably would have had a rebellion on your hands and trouble but you talked about growing up in that environment of play and discovery probably the fact that you you injected playfulness and a and an environment of creativity. It probably is what made that class a, a joy and a success. And you didn't have a rebellion on your hands. And it makes me think of that that great Ken Robinson. I don't know if you ever watched the TED Talk. Yeah. 
about how we educate the creativity out of our children. So I think it's interesting that, that you did that. Um, I heard you talk, uh, interviewed before and you talked about uh, a pivotal moment in your life uh, where your husband had a tragic stroke age 24. Can you just explain the impact that where that happened on your journey and the impact that had on you taking the direction you did with your uh, focus on education and going continuing with the nonconformity and 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 embracing STEM education and representing uh, those less fortunate? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's like. When, ev- when anyone, I think, experiences something tragic in their lives, there's sort of this <laughs> diversion of paths and choices that you can make. And it was, you know, when you think about your kind of timeline of your life, it's definitely, you know, him suffering a massive stroke at such a young age and, and us having a brand new baby at the time that it happened. I mean, it's a huge, it was a huge moment for me in terms of definition. And again, I don't think I would have even survived it without... Uh, my family. But for me, I think what it showed was that not only can life, you know, change literally in a blink of an eye, but it showed me that because there was sort of this second chance for him, but also for me, it was, it couldn't be wasted, right? It couldn't, the opportunity could not be fleeting. It needed to be seized. And really, I needed to do something meaningful with, with my life. And I think that teaching is incredibly uh, noble and, you know, is a, something that's vital to our, the foundation of our communities and society. But for me, it was, how do I take, you know, my passion for science and math? And at the time, kind of STEM was emerging on the scene as a, sort of the new buzzword of the day. How do I take something that I care about and how do I really start to grow and expand that out? And so... Myself and, you know, two other women really doubled down on that vision of what would it mean to put science and math at the forefront of a school and what was taught versus kind of being the nice to have or the first thing that gets cut in the schedule of the day. And we just started designing and tinkering in a notebook and a binder about our thoughts and visions around it. And and then it suddenly became something. It actually became a vision of something that, you know, I remember the exact day where we looked at each other and said, we could really do this. Like we could really open one of the first STEM schools in the country. We, we could do this. And, uh, were these teacher, the colleague teachers that you were working were, with at, yeah. at the time? Yeah. yeah. So my colleague, uh, had been at, we had actually job shared a position, uh, for many years together because we both had young children and wanted to kind of be able to be part-time educators and part-time, you know, moms, stay-at-home moms. So we had job shared and we were very, very close and very much on the same line. And then we took a position together at the district level to oversee uh, science for the district at the elementary middle school level. And when we, and we worked with an incredibly brilliant uh, woman there and the three of us were the team. We were, we were the science team for the district. And so that's where the scheming started. And yeah, and it just kind of became the perfect storm. But I think having been through what we all went through when my first um, husband had a stroke, I, for me, there was just such an urgency to, you know, glom onto something normal because life was so incredibly not normal. But at the same time, the realization hit that there was such a huge disruption to my life that it was time to do something with the disruption, that it was time to 
to make the changes that needed to happen if it, if it was going to happen. And so, again, nobody does that alone or in a vacuum. There was an incredible network of support for that to all play out the way that it did. I've used the quote before and tied related to, I suppose, serendipity, that life happens for us, not to us. Exactly. Um, and that sort of pivotal moment when the paths diverge, you took the right that path to embrace something that, you know, was not widely understood or embraced uh, and supported within the education system at the time. But you went further. Your vision was bigger than just saying, hey, we're going to put math and science at the heart of the education you embrace local business brain trust at the same time as well which was for me a very visionary to see it as a longer term opportunity as a path to success for the children and to build uh, a network with local businesses through problem-based learning what what gave you that idea because that seemed to be very um ahead of its time yeah i mean so i think coming from industry into education, I sort of had this beginner or mindset or this naive mindset of kind of, you know, again, not only asking questions, but just not always saying, why are we not doing this? Or why, why is this not happening? Why do we do this? And, you know, sometimes that gets, gets you into trouble, but for me, it just made sense. And so, you know, I honestly, very similarly remember, you know, myself and my team were sitting around kind of working through some design scenarios around what it would look like to have a, a fully kind of math and science focused school, science focused school. And, you know, we said, let's look to industry. What, how do they learn? How, what's the model that engineers use? What's the model that scientists use or researchers use? And we started, you know, kind of doing these like word circles around all the ways that they would, you know, do, you know, their learning, if you will, in the real world, quote unquote. And, it suddenly just kind of dawned on us that problem-based learning is perhaps one of the, maybe the oldest forms of learning on the planet, right? But it just seemed to instantly click. It was like, this makes so much sense. And if you're going to create an experiential, authentic learning model, and you want industry to be at the table, they have to also understand that value proposition really clearly. So it just made complete sense. And it was such a beautiful, and it still is such a beautiful model because industry gets to inherently be at the table with education in not a shallow or, you know, fleeting manner, but in this very entrenched, deep impact way of saying, I care about these problems in my industry or my sector. I want young people to be at the table to help solve it. I'm invested in them. I'm invested in the problem. And then you have these partnerships that form our and these relationships that are built that are not only lasting, but are incredibly meaningful. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my students have a network, right? They can go, they, they have people, they have, they have people they can go to for their first job, for advice, for mentorship, for advocacy. And we, we have built that for them through, through their schooling, which I think is quite incredible. You know, we had five industry partners who showed up around a table when we first did our call out. And I remember thinking, you know, being disappointed we only had five, but the minute that we started talking and sharing and I could see their excitement, I knew that there was something there, to be honest. It was, I will say they were a little shocked when I said that we were going to start with five-year-olds because I think 
start with high schoolers. So I quickly explained it was a, a long-term relationship, but I could instantly see their excitement. And uh-huh. I just knew that this was worth expanding and building out and and not, you know, giving up on it. Yeah, there's a symbiosis there that it makes you realize that if you think, I mean, I know there's a lot of, uh, of discussion around what the future of society and work and uh, community is going to look like post-COVID. I'm actually doing a, a little social initiative here in New York at the moment called Back the Neighbourhood, where we're looking at urban regeneration just in one neighbourhood and looking at the systemic issues that need fixed. But what you're describing, you think about small communities before globalization, businesses, families, community were all bound together in a symbiotic sort of relationship where the people went through school, were related to the business, were found their way, there was a support network. And that's been lost in a globalized world. And what you seem to have done is reconnected that fabric, which is lovely. What, in terms of just the impact that's had on children's views to learning, could you just uh, explain a little bit about the impact that not just STEM, but the problem-based learning and having that, that mentor community there has had on the, on the children? I think for, for me, the most profound you know, sort of impact of that is there's been this changing of the narrative and when you change the narrative you start to shift identities and so the schools that we started you know were certainly in neighborhoods again that are very much at risk and highly impacted and so you hear a lot from students that they can't they won't they don't know how they don't have the confidence or feel like the skills to to do whatever it is right whatever whatever it is and this what was profound to us is when and we didn't you know, think about this when we built the model, but over the years, what's been profound is that we have changed, the, the model itself has changed the narrative for students into I can, I will, and I want to. And you see students saying things like, you know, I thought that I would, you know, be a hairdresser because that's what my mom and my aunts do. And I think, you know, I could do that. And again, thing wrong with that at all. But then suddenly they have an experience with an industry partner or they are involved in a problem-based learning unit and suddenly they're saying, you know what, I think I actually want to pursue, pursue you know, being a neurologist because this, this really resonated with me about how the brain works. I mean, you go or like, now I want to be a fashion designer. And not only do they say that, but they mean it and then they suddenly know how to get there. They suddenly understand mm. the pathway that they need to take. They now have a network of mentors that look like them and came from similar backgrounds as them, but have are in the space that they want to be in. And so it's just this, it's been amazing. And I think on the educator side, it's been that shift as well. You no longer have teachers saying, well, I'm just a teacher. I have mm-hmm. teachers saying like, I'm a STEM teacher. And not only am I a STEM teacher, but I, you know, work closely with, you know, Lockheed Martin and I work closely with Samsung and IBM. And here's the projects we do together. Like, it just has really been this huge uplifting of the education as a sector becoming more high impact, but it's also this opportunity experience that I've never imagined. I mean, you know, I could tell you story after story of individual students whose, you know, lives have been completely transformed by simply solving a real world problem with industry partners at the table saying, I care about your idea. I care about what you have to say. And being very brutally honest to them, giving them feedback, saying it's okay to fail. Let's just keep iterating. Mm-hmm. 
it's been, I mean, it's, it's truly been life-changing. And I know that that sounds sort of silly, right? Everybody wants to say that about education, but for me, we've seen it happen. We've seen whole communities be uplifted by this notion of what it means to come together um, for the benefit of students to do extraordinary work. And I think it's incredibly powerful. Okay, so you're, you started this in uh, in Colorado, but it's now a model that's available to scale across the country through your nonprofit MindSpark, enabling schools to create these transformative student experiences. Uh, I read a bit about on, on the site and to try and understand a bit more about what your vision, sort of mission is, and I think I summarize it as uh, to prepare young people for the world of two thousand uh, sorry twenty thirty and beyond, and mobilize diverse ecosystems to create a sustained economy through education by mobilizing a workforce that's capable of tackling the complex problems that we're sure to face in the ca- as a calendar turns to 2030. That might happen even quicker, depending yeah, on if Ray Kurzweil's <laughs> right or not. But it feels, I mean, I've spoken to a, a couple of other people who are at the forefront of trying to think about reimagine education. Julia Black in the UK is doing something really interesting. I'll connect you with her. I think this would be a good um, conversation. And Maria Dantos here in New York, working on K through eight as well. From an outsider, I, I care. I really believe that education is the most important thing to for our humanity moving forward into a, um, an AI-driven world. It feels like we're somewhere we're lagging behind where we need to be and that you're this the, the driving forth, the nose cone of change. How can we accelerate it? How can this be? How can we catch up? Because it feels like that the programs of what you're doing can't just be on an incremental one by one here and there. There's got to be something at a, a at a either a federal, probably a federal level that needs to uh, to accelerate this this level of change because it's got to be. I know you talk about iterative, but it's, this has got to be transformative. Yeah, I think that for me, you know, it's interesting because whether you want to become a STEM school or you don't doesn't necessarily matter as much to me as much as that you want to embrace this idea of having an experiential, very authentic and relevant learning and teaching model. And there's there's multiple ways to do that. I mean, for us, problem-based learning, I think, is incredibly impactful and powerful, but I think there's other models to scale that are that could probably have similar stories and impact. So for me, it's the idea that it can't, education has sort of this crisis where we tend to swing the pendulum all the way one way. And then when that doesn't work, we swing it all the way back to the next. And for me, the where you scale brilliance in education is in the middle ground. It's not running from one extreme to the next. And we've got to stop doing that. We've got to stop saying, well, that didn't work. We're abandoning everything we knew and we're going to try something that new and constantly searching for that magic bullet because it's just not there. And people are the answer. And so the way that you transform a system is from the inside out. And when you realize that you're part of the system, it's much easier to to realize the change and the impact that you can have. And so I always tell people it's not about running around buying stuff or finding that next magical curriculum. It's about investing in your people. And if you want to scale transformation in education, you need to make a solid investments, not only in the students in the system, but in the adults as well. And teachers are pivotal. They, I mean, the research is still clear. It's been clear for decades now that they're the greatest lever that you have to transformation period. And yet, you know, we don't, we don't do a lot of investing in them. And um, you can't scale amazing 
you know, direct to student programs without teachers as part of that equation. It's just not going to happen. You won't have the reach you want. They will be your greatest barrier and obstacle as much as they can be your greatest, you know, lever to pull. And so for me, it's, it's that. It's about creating the talent and upskilling and supporting the talent in the sector to truly scale what we know is best in education because we, we know what's best. We, we don't need to go around debating that. We need to start investing in the talent that we have in front of us. Most educators have only grown up in one sector, which is education. They don't, they don't know the experience of other sectors, yet they're preparing students for those. And so we've got to just rethink the way that we bring talent into education differently and create our own pipeline for that. And that's kind of the passion um, that we have at MindSpark around that work, but that's how you scale. And I agree with you, federal initiatives are, are certainly really, really important. And the value that, that that's, you know, what they, that side sort of where the value is placed, but it's a talent piece for me. It's investing in people as the answer and not, not the isolated programs, curriculum and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've worked on a a consulting project back in 2005 uh, for the UK government where they were doing their new education white paper. And for me, it was interesting that the government hired a bunch of consultants to come in and say, hey, this is how you have to change education. Of course, it's political, it's partisan, party politics driven. You go, and as you were talking about the pendulum swifting, uh, shifting and swinging, it was exactly that. It was totally under the sort of the auspices of a, a, a shift changing government. So, so what, when you talk about the this uh, reorientating and using the, the the talent the talent pool that are the educators, how do you manage to do that at MindSpark? Because presumably teachers, one the time they're time pressured, scarce, particularly in a COVID world of remote learning. How do you find the time to? help them reorientate and change the nature of how they think about teaching and build these networks and maintain what they're doing as educators? Yeah, I mean, you have to build, you know, responsive opportunities and responsive experiences. You also have to, you know, we call it stopping the clock. And so the value proposition that I always sort of present to schools is that, yes, Professional development is certainly important. I mean, that's what we do, but it's it's more than that. It's becoming, you need to see it as not something that you beat people over the head with and make this horrible thing that everybody moans and doesn't want to go to. You need to see it as an opportunity to make your organization more intelligent, you know, more resilient, and to truly get to the work that matters and cut out the noise. And so... You know, if you if you value those things as a district, as a school, as an organization, then you find the time. I mean, it's just that simple, right? I mean, if that's important to you, then you stop the clock for your teams and your employees to be able to engage in experiences, professional learning experiences that mean something and that are going to move the needle for your organization, period. And so once we start working with organizations and kind of start creating that value for them, they instantly see it, right? It's tangible and then they want more of it. And so the experiences grow and and evolve and kind of they, you know, level up, if you will, toward what they want to ultimately accomplish. And it doesn't need to take three to five years. One of my sort of greatest pet peeves in education is we want to pilot everything for three to five years, but there's not, there's not a sector where the, the need for change is more immediate than now. 
because you, students don't have three to five years. You miss whole, you know, generations of kids if you wait that long. And so for me, this is something that, you know, you can see a school transform and turn itself around in six months to a year. This doesn't need to, this doesn't need to take a long time. We don't have a long time. And that's, that's the thing. If you, if you start and you train and you tackle the foundation of what it means to teach and learn and not just keep piling things on top of a broken foundation, then you can, you know, move faster and make changes quicker. Mm. But if you just, it sounds as you're talking, it's, uh, the, the language you're using and the, it sounds like this there's a design thinking approach to it an agile methodology uh, as if a, a system is being redeveloped uh, while still operating so it's it's inspiring what a couple of things how do you go about scaling your organizational partnerships to make that national uh, as a means of uh, helping accelerate the change? Yeah, so one of um, the biggest ways that we scale currently is that we form partnerships with large corporate partners or larger or community organizations, and we figure out the sweet spot of where we can support each other, and and then we deploy that strategy. So an example of that is we have a North American partnership with IBM. So the goal there is to train 100,000 educators in AI across North America within, you know, 18 months to 24 months. And so, you know, that's a very quick scaling up project, but we're not sacrificing the scale for the impact. And so the way that we're doing it is, you know, kind of embedding ourselves in communities across North America that have an interest and an appetite for learning more about AI as a sector and and all of the things AI can and can't do for us. And then really going in kind of in a deeper way with those communities. And so, we, you know, that's kind of our, the, the methodology that we, we use, because again, similar back to when we started our STEM schools, education can't do this alone and having industry at the table is key. And so, you know, having corporations who have a, a love and a passion for education oftentimes don't have the best strategy to be just quite honest, right? They want to help and, and be in the education space, but they they themselves don't always come up with the best kind of deeper, higher impact strategies, more kind of a blanketed approach or a sprinkling. And so we feel like part of our role is to help them have a better strategy and then deploy that strategy and then be able to come back and say, wow, look at what's happened because of your investment in your time and our partnership. And that's really, really important to us. And so there's also an economic value there, not just, you know, doing a, a great, fun, one-off project, but really saying, wow, you've completely transformed these whole communities, and this is how. Uh, it's very cool and inspiring. What are your hopes for the future of education in the U.S. and beyond, particularly that we're facing an unprecedented pace, uh, pace of change in the nature of just work itself as AI and uh, AGI accelerates? And you know, I think it's fair to say that we are in a bit of an uh, artificial intelligence arms race with different nations around the world that's unregulated, and we won't get into that. But I mean, I've, I just finished reading a book by Rutger Bregman uh, that, uh, called The Utopia for Realists, talking about touches on the future of work and the future of universal basic income and I I mean you must have a sense from where you sit as to where things may go or where they should go yeah I think that you know for me I I my biggest I guess my biggest fear I'll start there before do my greatest hope but my biggest fear is that 
education, again, is a very high impact sector, won't embrace the opportunity before it to reimagine and re-engineer itself, that we will revert back to what we know, we will revert back to, you know, kind of our old bad habits, if you will. And so that's my, that's my biggest fear because it's comfortable, it's easier, and, and it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's what we know. So it's what we do. My greatest hope is that that won't happen and that education will see itself as, as important as any other sector, as important as healthcare, advanced manufacturing, you know, the hard sciences, all of it. And we'll see a chance to really, this disruption as opportunity and a way to embrace true innovation and creativity and to our earlier point, curiosity around what's possible. And that they'll, they'll put pen to paper and get busy and do some really intentional design work around you know, how they connect kids to the workforce and talent development in robust ways, how they inspire passions and interests of students in robust ways. There's just so much amazing and good things that can happen that I just have this sense that the time is the time is now, and and there's this moral imperative for me to have these systems be better than we than we were before, than we you know sort of found them. Education um, was built for this. Yeah, it needs to realize hmm. that it needs to realize its own potential. Yeah, I totally agree. The one thing that I've heard you talk about before is uh, diversity, and uh, we're talking here. I think at the heart of what you're doing is is just is uh, is innovation uh, in its purest sense, and uh, from the, some of the conversations I've had with people that are uh, doing really interesting things that are I would describe as innovative, it feels to me that, that that real innovation is a combination of when you combine diversity, not just in terms of race and, and colour, but in terms of thinking, experience, age, with playfulness, creating an environment of playfulness and which unlocks to a degree uh, serendipity or even where the word procrastination is misunderstood that sometimes things happen when they are ready to happen. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about just the importance of cultivating diverse teams and environments in education. I think it's paramount. I, I think that to have, you know, the different perspectives at the table, but also to honor and bring forward people's experiences and their stories is really, really important. And we tend to do a terrible job in education where we want everyone to fit one size and have a similar story. And that has to stop. And so I think that that, that is absolutely key. And again, I think it starts with the adults in the systems as much as it starts with the students because the students are already there, right? They're there. They're ready. So the adults in the system is where we've got to focus that that energy. And to exactly your point, I think that, you know, the one thing that I love about the work that we do is that it's hard work. People leave our sessions tired. Their brains are tired. They have done the majority of the thinking and of the doing, but they also have had so much fun along the way because it's been unexpected. There's been these surprise and delights and this kind of like shifting them a little bit off balance where their brains have had to, to work in a different way. And they love it and it's addicting. And having, you can imagine what it would be like to have classrooms like that, right? Where students are doing all of the thinking, all of the talking, all of the doing. And at the same time, there's fun and passion and interest involved in that. And they walk away exhausted, but just hungry for more. And, you know, we have to also create models where innovation kind of meets this 
you know, creative abrasion piece and this creative resolution piece. And we have to see ourselves as, as truly as scientists and researchers in it and designers. So there's just some personas there that I think need to be adopted that are very different than the personas that we adopt in education currently to truly uplift that more innovative spirit and to keep that curiosity alive. It's funny, you know, teachers will always tell you like they got into education because they see themselves as lifelong learners, which is very cool. But then when you ask them what that actually means, it's it's always, you know, sort of a, an interesting array of answers that kind of come back to not really having that curiosity and creativity at the forefront. So I think it's just, again, time that if you want to instill lifelong learning, it cannot be absent of those things that we know are so important, like imagination and play and creativity and innovation and disruption as a thing. That's, those things just become really, really important. That's great. So I'll put links to your, uh, to your site and any social links in the show notes okay. for people who want to find out more. Great. I'm conscious of time. Can we get to the quick fire questions? Okay. What principles do you stand by? I stand by the principles of being kind. I also stand by the principles of, you know, it's probably not very PC, but there's kind of two pieces for me is, and I tell these to my teenage children, so excuse the language, but, uh, <laughs> Don't be a dumbass and don't be an asshole. <laughs> kind of my two principles, you know, to kind of come back to be smart and be kind. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, I, again, going back to the stories of my, of my parents and my childhood, I think for me, there's also a value of hard work. I have very little patience for those that don't put in the time and the effort that is needed to make change because it's, it doesn't just come, it doesn't just happen. And so the value of, of working hard, but working smart, it's really, really important to me. And, and the last one, which I constantly have to work on myself is coming from a place of gratitude. I think for what, what is possible, what has happened, being grateful that tragedy has happened in my life and what has it taught me and what have I, what do I have now because of it that I didn't have before. So just that those are some things that really, really are important to me. I try to carve out time to make sure I'm still in my teens, in my own family, my own children. Like that. So. Okay. I think I want one of these dumbass, um, don't be dumb t-shirts. <laughs> Front and back. <laughs> what hard choices have you uh, had to make that may have been tough at the time, but did turn out in retrospect to be the right decision? You know, I think you spoke about it earlier. The When my husband had a stroke, we, we collectively together made the decision to walk away from our marriage so that he could heal and focus on his, his himself and his own um, condition and, and rehabbing himself. And I think... One, that was an incredibly difficult decision for both of us. At the same time, I look now at our different pathways and, you know, the opportunities that sort of came from the, that decision. And I look at my, you know, my family that I have now, and I have you know, two amazing and beautiful children that may, may not be here because of that decision. So, you know, definitely was probably one of the most difficult decisions ever. Uh, but definitely was at the time, even though difficult, probably the, the, the right or the, the better of the, of the choices that we made. So there's that. And then I think the other one was to walk away from engineering as my career because I, it was part of my DNA. It was so much what I have always had always wanted to do and my love for science and, 
wanting to change the world through science and walking away from that was difficult. At the same time, it showed me that I could still hold deeply onto that passion for science and make a difference in people's lives in a different way through teaching them to love science as much as I did and still do. So again, good things came out of that decision, but it wasn't an easy one. I almost felt like I was letting myself down, but then this educational door opened and choosing to walk through it's probably been one of the best decisions of my career in my life. Okay. Yeah, we ask that really because it's, I think it's foundational to serendipity is being prepared to go down the road less traveled and take uh, difficult choices. Yes. Um, where do you go to discover new ideas? So I'm a big believer that there's this magical kind of, you know, ooey gooey middle that happens when you take ideas from very things that are very not related to each other. And so one of my favorite activities for myself is to kind of get into the darker corners of sectors that are very unknown to me and read about them and learn about them and think about who the influencers are in them and then figure out how I can take those and bring them into the education sector. And for me, that's where I find ideas and inspiration. And it's like, I always tell my team, it's like when you, you know, dive into a lava cake and that beautiful <laughs> melted middle uh, comes out and it's so delicious. For me, that's the where I find kind of those juicy, delicious ideas is looking way outside of what I know um, and kind of wading into spaces that just are so unknown to me and then figuring out how I can find some commonalities with the passions and interests that I do have. It's interesting. I was interviewing uh, this week's guests, the ones that will go live uh, today, have finished the edit. Uh, it's uh, Charlie Quirk and Britton Rice. They're, they have a podcast called The Furious Curious and one's an advertising strategist, the other's a creative. They were talking about, or Britain was talking about, how he has built up a, a deck of cards from different people he's met with their thinking that it creates divergence in his thinking. And he also uses, I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Eno, mm, yes. the musician. So Brian Eno's got a, car, a card deck that does a very similar thing. Oh, I can't so remember cool. the name he mentioned it. So it would be worth checking out yes, for your... I love that. Uh, for your process, I think you'd enjoy it. Besides education, uh, re-engineering... What's the one problem that really needs solving? I think for me, it's, you know, we, it's how to take care of each other and our planet for me. So it's, you know, there's, there's these big, really rich, meaty problems facing all of us right now. But I think that there's this really amazing opportunity to come up with solutions that cross pollinate and work across multiple, multiple problem areas, if you will. And so I think tackling the future is really <laughs> going to be huge for us. And it's, you know, taking care of, of the people. And like I said, taking care of our planet. I, I think this, you know, kind of green sustainability initiative or whatever you want to call it can't be again a fleeting moment for our world. It's got to be something that we pay attention to. And I think the health and well-being of our communities is directly tied to the health and well-being of our environment. And again, you know, education is kind of at the epicenter of that as well. But I think looking to the future and thinking about how we're going to come together and work smartly across a lot of these big problems is going to be key. And it impacts everything from healthcare to equity to, you know, like I said before, education, that those are the things kind of on top of my mind is looking at all the problems currently and saying, where can we start digging in and finding solutions that 
can be walked across multiple multiple areas of the problem. Great answer. Yeah, I could definitely sort of continue that conversation, but we haven't really got the time now. Might have to do a follow up on that one. Uh, but I wanted to build before COVID was starting. Uh, I'm a member of a co-working space, a creative community space in New York called Neuhaus. And I want to launch a series um, of workshops called Problems Worth Solving, where I bring in guests from the podcast and other people to say, look, the problems can't be solved in isolation because everything is connected. Yes. So you need to sort of bring design thinking into deconstructing. But anyway, that's a different conversation. <laughs> so to the building on that point, though, for people from history, you'd invite around for a dinner party to help you plan for a better future and solve some of these big problems. Ooh, that's a good one. So from history. Huh? So I think I would definitely have like a Maya Angelou. I think I would definitely have, you know, although, you know, he's kind of the epitome of a, old dead white guy scientist i think i'd still invite albert einstein to my to my dinner party to do some thinking when i say history they could still be alive oh good i think i would have you know a melinda gates around um the table and you know and then i think i would have you know someone like you know fun and fresh like probably one of the bigger tiktok influencers of the day or somebody that just brings a different perspective all together and so I'd probably just want to have a, a gathering of diverse thinkers and people who have different passions to your point around some of the biggest problems going on and start putting ideas on the table. So I think that's probably, you know, who I would start to maybe even like a Michael Jordan or two and <laughs> you know, start thinking about some different problems. But. Okay. Is there a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? I think people always ask, you know, what's the solution to us? And, and I think that's an important question. But I think the, the more important question is, is how do we get there? And so I always wish that people would focus more on the process of how versus the what or the outcome, because I think the how, again, is where change happens. And that's really important to me. So. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Yes. So besides my, I think besides obviously my parents being so influential in that, I think that the, the founders of MindSpark, Carrie and John Morgridge, have completely, they came into my life and completely disrupted for me what it meant to be, to take what I was doing and scale it. She has been this driving force for me around you know, your one school's great, Kelly. How do you have three? You know, you ha now you have three schools. What's next? And there's this constant iteration of, for her of what's next? Where do we go from here and pushing? And then she also is, you know, they, they both, their foundation is also been very influential for me in terms of pushing me out of my comfort zone. And as soon as I start to get kind of settled and comfortable, this, you know, a new opportunity will come up that she'll send along and it completely you know, will take things in a direction I hadn't expected. And so I think, you know, for me, that's the kind of people that I love to have in my life. And they've been very helpful in that piece. Okay. You mentioned early on about uh, the fact that with curiosity, anything's possible. Possible question, what would your advice be to some of your students that might have a big dream, a goal and ambition, but someone's telling them it's impossible? Yeah. Get back on that horse. <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's the answer that's the answer right 
It's as simple as that. Yep. Okay. Um, finish with these questions. We are out of lockdown. You're in a karaoke bar. Uh, what's the go-to karaoke song? <laughs> so you know that I grew up on a ranch, so country's my go-to. So probably a Garth Brooks song, to be honest. <laughs> I'm very... You got, you got to give me one. You got to give you one. So my favorite Garth Brooks song is Shameless. Shameless, right, okay. I'm in the process of putting together a, a Spotify playlist of all the guests and songs. Is, I've started it, so uh, I'll go on the list. Uh, a recent series during lockdown from Netflix, Amazon, Apple that you think someone should watch that they might not have? Yeah, so this was a surprise and delight for me. It came through a friend, a recommendation on Netflix. It's like the, it's an adaptation from the French show, but it's, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but it's like either Lupin or Lupin. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah. So it was delightfully so great. Like I want part two to come out. I it, Part one's already only been released. And so it was just such a, it was such a great show and it was so unexpected for me. I wasn't sure what to what it was going to be even be about and found myself really loving it and having that sort of it was just fun it was playful and fun but like dark and serious at the same time and I really loved it so I would recommend it and again probably show up on everyone's suggestions but it was good yeah cool okay we offer listeners a book that when they come up with a good comment in the comment section or comment on Instagram or on the website what book should we offer them so right now um, in its very popular right now but right now i've been obsessed with adam grants oh yeah yeah Yeah, he's just you know i I love i love him and we belong to the the big idea um book club and uh i just it's been something i've been recommending to people because i think it's such a great way especially for institutional education to start to think and outside of themselves and rethink what's going on in the world today so that would definitely be on the on my list and Okay, and final question, who should we interview next? Oh, that's a great question. So I have a couple of people in mind, but I think one, there's uh, the John Farnham. So he belongs to kind of the Mortgage Family Foundation, but he is also chairman of my board. But he has a, a really fascinating story and has such an interesting perspective on things. So he would be fascinating, I, I believe, for you to, to interview. He'd be really, really great. So. Okay, then. All right. Well, we'll follow up afterwards. So I just wrap up and just uh, thank you for your time. And take some notes as talking in terms of what really um, struck a chord and acknowledge you for. Clearly, I think your fearlessness to uh, fearlessness of failure in the face of failure, leading from your that uh, seminal horse. uh, And also your profound sense of social injustice and embrace of uh, and fight for social equity so yeah we just uh, look forward to continue the conversations and uh, wish you all the best with MindSpark and, and what we also do is with the, the the podcast is we try and connect people because it's called Impossible Network so where we see connections we'll make introductions so Wonderful. I'll definitely be introducing you to Maria Dantos and to Julia Black I would love that from uh, Light Up Mums in the UK yeah I would love that so much thank you so much for this opportunity it was fantastic Wonderful. And I looked forward to it so much. So thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. Great. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. 
And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.